Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Off The Beaten Track podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode, Are oh, You Lucky Lucky People, You're In For A Treat, I have this wonderful chat with Amanda Palmer, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Um, we talk all the usual questions, and we, as as is the case with most of these episodes and most podcasts in general, you pinball over the place talking stories and stuff. And and Amanda was was an absolutely wonderful guest, and and you're like I said, you're in for a real treat. Um, before we get on with the episode, um, just big thanks to Scroobius Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Big thanks to 76 for producing this podcast. And and if this is your first time listening to Off The Beaten Track podcast, and uh, and well, what I'll say is when you get to the end of this episode, then why not have a look in the archives? Because there's 180-odd episodes now with some of your favourite producers, DJs, oh gosh, uh, comedians, actors. Like There's so many from... You know, from Spice Girls to Deftones to Chuck D to Scroobius Pip. Oh, gosh, the, the, the list goes on. So go and have a rummage in the archives when you finish listening to this episode, and I'm sure there'll be something there that will tickle your fancy. And uh, and if you really enjoy it and you wish to support it, then there's also a Patreon page that um, accompanies this this podcast where I put radio shows up each week and standalone episodes. So you can go and uh, support the podcast over there should you wish to. Um, and you can find out about all of these things at www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com. Let's get on with today's episode. It gives me great pleasure to say, please enjoy Off The Beat and Track Podcast with Amanda Palmer. It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me, Stu Whiffin. Okay, we are recording. Sitting opposite me today via the means of Zoom is Amanda Palmer. Hello. Uh, I'm not in Sydney. You're not in Sydney. I said over Zoom. Oh, over Zoom. Yeah, yeah, over yeah. Zoom. Yeah, in the in the new portal of our times. It's crazy, right? Yeah, of the day. It's so weird, dude. So where are you actually? Sorry, I thought you said that I was in Sydney. I'm close uh, though. I mean, in relative terms, I'm in Hawke's Bay, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Oh, nice. Um, I was touring here and then I stayed. I was touring here in March. I canceled my last show of a global 80-date tour. I was supposed to be wrapping up in New Zealand, and holy shit, I I just stayed because I'm not an idiot, and I'm from New York. So I have just been living this surreal, quantum, parallel life. Have you found the last um, six months creatively uh very 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 difficult because i'm raising a a child alone Mm. um and so i have you know that like the tap never goes off in my head ideas for songs and books and stories and projects and everything like i can't stop those coming but i have to watch them all die which is 
like extra tragic because I just don't have time yeah. to um, to make anything really. I'm I'm busy running my business, trying to keep my staff in New York together, uh, putting out a podcast, which which in a way is actually like. I have to shut up a little bit because the the podcast is creative. It just doesn't feel like making a song or a record or a play or a video. Um, it, it feels so much more like direct media, but that's actually where a lot of my time has been going. I just launched a podcast about yeah. a week ago that I've yeah. been working on for two years. It's just conversations with people and that's sort of soaking up my desk time, which is, you know, I've been working 15, 20 hour weeks. Like there's just not a lot of time. Yeah. And, um, and I also don't really regret it. Like I have a young child and I actually feel like I know a lot of parents who are artists are struggling with this, but I'm like, it's fine to give up for a while and just put your creative juices into a child. Yeah. But it's really like, it's hard ego work. I think one of the things that, (laughs) That struck me straight away when when we when we went into lockdown. My, my, my daughters are, are seventeen and fifteen, Amanda, and and for me, like the kind of concept of Zoom and and stuff like that was it made me feel a bit old because I was like, oh, hang on a minute, I can't talk to people over a computer. That's weird. Yeah. And and I was like, it was just a walk in the park for my kids because they'd just been FaceTiming and stuff for like two years, and they were They're just like. Tomatoes. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. It's just it, it was it was no great shakes for them, and you know I was kind of climbing the walls, wanting to go out and meet people, and like they're just like, no, oh, no, it's just what we do. It's kind of fine, and uh, yeah, I thought it's that was. Of, re- it's kind of creepy to us, but of course it would be because we're old. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Track one, Amanda. I'd like to know what you regard as the song with the greatest ever intro. Oh my god. I mean, the, these answers are all going to be so random, so I think I'm just going to say the first thing that comes to my head, no matter what the question is. The, Wonderful. The, the first thing that came to my head was Let's Go Crazy by Prince. Ah, <laughs> oh, no one's done that yet. That's a great show. Yeah, love it. Yeah. It's like, and I remember, I remember that was my, one of my very, very first records and first favorite records. Yeah. And I had it on tape and then got it on vinyl. Yeah. And, um... I guess I would have been like eight or nine when I got that record. Yeah. And like, I didn't know any of the rules of music or records or songwriting. And I didn't really know what Prince was saying, who he was talking to, what that was. And um, I just knew that it, it's, it sounded real. Yeah. Like, it sounded like he had the authority to stand there and say that, <laughs> dearly beloved. And like I, I did a, I did a project with my band back in I think it was 2012 where we covered that entire record. We did all of Purple Rain, beginning to end, for a New Year's show, and yeah. we really like we rehearsed the shit out of it, and we learned all the parts. And oh my god, those parts are really hard. Yeah, uh, yeah and that was like it. I felt like a spiritual channeling of Prince standing on stage saying those words and it meant what it meant to who it meant. Like the people in the crowd who were maybe who were younger or weren't Prince fans probably did not feel like they were channeling the the Holy ghost, but I did. Well, it's like a, it's an ambitious intro for, for what was also, you know, Prince was fundamentally, you know, seen as a pop star and that was a single as well. Yeah, and, and the first song on the record. Yeah, and like, yeah. and that's you know, I mean, I guess that intro to when doves cry or what was the other singles off of that album? I'm just trying to think. What were probably more straight up kind of? Right. I guess what you'd see as a, a pop single, and so that kind of leads me onto the question that I, I always ask musicians, um, and 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 the fact you've chosen that is such a great kind of entry point into that. How how have you seen? your songwriting change over the, the, the duration of your career and, mm. and also intro because, you know, since the beginning of your, your, your music career to now, 
the way that people listen to music and and where they find their music is is probably far different from when it was when you first started writing music. And has oh, yeah. that had any um, impact on how you how you write? Oh, I think it absolutely has. I think I have I've responded to a lot of stimulus and feedback and context as a songwriter. Yeah. Um, and I, I could say so many things about that from the way I have changed the way I write lyrics, um, especially lately, my last record, uh, I've become much more direct um, as, and by choice, kind of. Like yeah. I have I've forced myself as a songwriter to kind of peel back and peel back. And this last record to me, uh, there will be no intermission was almost a challenge to myself to see how direct I could be. Yeah. Um, and, and also length is a real consideration. I am patron funded now. Mm-hmm. So I have 15,000 people giving me a few dollars a month to just survive, exist, yeah. write, create output. Um, and it means that like the last vestiges of thinking that my songs had to have commercial value are really starting to die. And one of the things that has meant is that I just don't consider song length of any importance. And I learned the hard way, um, back when I recorded the first Dresden Dolls album, that like songs had to be short if they were going to be viable. Yeah. And I knew. Are you talking about radio there, Amanda? Yeah. I'm talking, I'm talking about radio and, and also just sort of like, even, even if you'd asked me then I wouldn't have even said radio. I would have just said like, Oh, like, you know, a song can't be longer than, Oh, I don't know. You know, on the outside, six, seven minutes. Why? I don't know. Cause that's just the way it is. Cause that's, those are the rules. Uh, And those are not the fucking rules. Yeah. Like what fuck what rules? Who made yeah. that rule? And so uh one of the things that I found notable about this last record, which was patron funded, and I was like, Ugh, I mean, I'll send it to the press. It might get sent to radio by some random person on one random distributor that I'm working with, but like this is not a record for radio. And yeah. this isn't even a record for sale. This yeah. is a record for people. Yeah. And I noticed that. Uh, most of the songs were over six or seven minutes and some of them approached 12. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and that is also, you know, directly due to the internet because yeah. without the internet, I wouldn't be able to have those 15,000 patrons. Um, I never would have done mail order patronage. It wouldn't have worked and it'd be too much work. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, like really watching that has been fascinating. You know, and also like going back to my little development as a songwriter in, you know, thinking about Prince and thinking about Michael Jackson and thinking about the Thompson Twins and Madonna and whatever, like all the music that I listened to as a, as a young, young person and how it really drove home, like these weird rules about what music was supposed to be. And then the music that I got into later really disintegrated a lot of that. Like the music I got into as a teenager and in college where I was listening to Einstein's and Annoy Bouton and John Cage and, and, you know, musicians who seemed to, to want to remind me that those rules were really only for a very specific compartment of music and that I could do anything I wanted. I don't think the pop sensibilities applied there, did they? Um, For track two, Amanda, I'm going to ask you about the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you. Ah, uh, well, define emotional impact. Anything. It could, have, it could have been joy, could have been sorrow, could have been longing, could, anything. That's such a good question. Um, well, I, I guess I could answer that a couple of ways because I, I have different memories about different emotions, but I think... Okay. Maybe the um, maybe the maybe the most important one was listening to um, Sgt. Pepper's as a little girl and just feeling excitement. Like that record made me excited to listen to it again. 
and again and again. And I spent like a year of my life just with giant headphones on in my parents' living room, just putting that record on again and again and being excited every time I put it on. Just like excited to listen to it, excited to look at the art, excited to hear those sounds again. And like the allure of that record was so different from the other records. Yeah. Like I got excited to get home from school and listen to it. I was going to ask, like, did you, you know, when you, you listened to that, was you staring at that, that sleeve? And obviously you I said... I was staring you, at you, that yeah. fucking sleeve. Yeah, yeah, I was. You can get lost in that, right? Sonically and visually, it's like, it's just a an overload, right? It's a smorgasbord. Yeah, and I still listen to it and don't get bored of it. And I play it for my son. And I, yeah, I feel like that is one of the world's perfect records. Yeah, definitely. Was there many records on at home growing up? Um, my parents didn't listen to records, but I did. Hmm. And my mom had a record collection of a past life that she had brought to the house that we moved into when I was four. Um, she and my dad split up when I was one. And then we, we moved out of New York city to, uh, a suburb of Boston and the record player was set up in the living room and she had a bunch of albums, maybe, I don't know, maybe a hundred records. And a lot of it was classical stuff. And there was a little musical theater stuff. And then there was uh, Fleetwood Mac, Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones, the Doors, the Beatles. Yeah. And I know because I looked through every single record every day yeah. And I and I kind of tried everything and I stared into every album cover. The classical stuff I wouldn't even put on. I would just look at the artwork. Mm. Um and the thing that really drew me in was the doors and the Beatles. And and I tried out the Rolling Stones and was like, eh. And I tried out Fleetwood Mac and was like, eh. And you know, and um and the Beatles and the Doors sucked me in. And so I just played those records on repeat. Waiting for the Sun was the Doors record I listened to on repeat. And, and Sgt. Pepper's was, was the Beatles record. And it, it's funny, like, since I was so myopic, I never like asked my mother to go out and buy more Beatles records or Doors records. I was just like, these are the records. Yeah. So here they are. <laughs> There's a limited collection of them and I have decided which ones I like and I'll just listen to them over and over again. That's cool. Well, you, you know, are you still obsessive with music when you find something that you love? Do you still kind of rinse it and play over and over and over and over? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I actually, um, I think I, I went through a phase where I felt silly for wanting to listen to music over and over again. What um, was that? Because I thought maybe that wasn't the way you're supposed to listen to music. I don't Is know. Is there a rule book? I don't mean there was a rule book. Cultural cooling. <laughs> I don't know, but I mean, I, I can think of many times in my life, uh, difficult times especially, where uh, music was just medicinal and I would put on that Philip Glass record, that Bright Eyes record, that in one very weird part of the darkest days of Dresden Dolls touring, that Avril Lavigne record. Like, <laughs> it felt like the most subversive punk rock yeah. thing I could do, like listen to Avril Lavigne's second record on repeat when I was in a, in a real, like, dark place uh, in around yeah. whatever that was, 2006. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes songs, like all, you know, when I'm driving, I'll just want to hear a song over and over again. I remember yeah. being... I was on a road trip with Neil once early in our relationship and um, I just wanted to listen to these two songs by Beck from Sea Change over yeah. and over again because they they were like, they were cleansing me and it was yeah. this beautiful, perfect road trip music uh, and, Neil got, and Neil got really upset. <laughs> and I was trying to explain to him that like, Again, like if the music was good, we 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 could just listen to it over and over again. And he was like, "I'm gonna kill you." Um, <laughs> so yeah, like one man's prize is another man's poison, or whatever that saying is. Like it, it, you know, 
all of that medicinal listening was pretty much done alone. Yeah. Although I did a, I did a great interview the other day about Kid A because it was the yeah. 20th anniversary. Um, and I had a, I had a lover in college, um, who got me more into Radiohead. I like, I had okay computer, but I hadn't fully grokked it. And I swear to God, me and this guy probably listened to okay computer two or three times a day for a month. And we would just listen to it and, talk and listen to it and smoke cigarettes and listen to it and have sex and listen to it and hold each other and go to bed. And it was just like, neither of us got sick of it. And there was no argument about what music was going on. Like that was the music and that was the music of the moment. And we didn't want any other music. We just wanted that record playing over and over again. And, And I think, you know, the only thing that's been like that in my life lately has been with my son. Like we've just been listening to two songs for the last week and it's fine. And I don't, They've been um, American Pie, right? And, and the Weird Al parody of American Pie, the Saga Begins, which is American <laughs> amazing, Pie, but about Star Wars, and and he gets to pick, and I know he wants one or the other, and sometimes he'll pick the Weird Al version, and sometimes he'll pick the American Pie version, and he has no value judgment. He thinks they're both great, and he's Wonderful. memorized both sets of lyrics. <laughs> it's so. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Good. Oh, great. Well, you touched on college there, but I'm going to take you back a little bit earlier for track three, Amanda. I'm going to ask you the song that reminds you of your time at school. Oh, Golly, um, well, which school? Any school? High I just school, gave I, you, I just gave you one school song, but that was a university. That was a university story. Um, a single song. Well, it doesn't. Is it okay if it reminds me of that age, but not really of being like physically in school? Yeah, just of course. Like school days. Yeah. Um. I, the first thing that came to me was Plain Song by The Cure. Nice. Which is the opening track of Disintegration. And that was like, that album meant everything to me when it came out. I was already a real Cure obsessive. And then that album dropped and I was like, I have found God and I will swim in this album forever and ever and never get bored. And and it's still true. I, I don't, I don't get sick of listening to that record, but I also try not to listen to it very often because it makes me really emotional. Yeah. And it, and it takes me straight back to being 14, 15. And um, 
I, when I went to go see The Cure, which was one of my first big formative concerts, they opened with Plain Song. Yeah. And, you know, I was in a huge arena with 15,000 people or 20,000 people, who knows. And I had the first, for the first time in my life, I felt spiritual about music. Listening yeah. to that song played at that volume standing with that many people with tears streaming down my face going like, Oh my God, I didn't know music could do this thing. And, um, yeah. And I think that album changed my life. And I think that moment changed my life. The cure certainly changed my life. The cure was like a real gateway into a different kind of music listening for me because I was a real pop kid yeah. And like, it was all Cindy Lauper and Madonna and Michael Jackson and George Michael. And, and then, and then I moved over to the cure and then there was no going back. Like yeah. the cure, the cure was my gateway into a whole other planet. And, and God, I still love that band so much. You mentioned okay computer earlier. And, and I was going to just say that there's a, there's a weight to that record. Like it's just a, a heaviness to it that I, I don't know how they do it. And as soon as you said disintegration, I just because that's my kind of that's the album that I think the production on that, and I don't want to get all nerdy, but the production, I don't know how they do it. I'm, I'm not a producer, I know nothing about production, but I know that that record sounds weighty, it sounds thick and heavy. Yeah. And there's just something about disintegration. I just, I was going to say it about OK Computer, and then you've literally said the other album that I would equate that kind of. Yeah, the production. Sounded, the production on both of those records is genius. Yeah. Like, and, um, and I think like those records taught me something about production that I carried with me when, when I was working on the Dresden dolls and especially not, not so much, <clears throat> not so much when I made this last record, cause this last record was, I mean, it had, it, it had a lot of really production elements in it, yeah. but, um, it's a solo piano record basically with, yeah. with moments of really, really, really well chosen moments of larger production. <coughs> Hold on. I'm just going to get a sip of water. And um, my, my big record in 2012, the one that I kickstarted theater is evil was almost like an homage to those records the the production is super thick there's lots of synth there's tons of heavy bass there's tons of shine there's tons of like dark sparkle and all of the all so all of those things that sort of make disintegration sound delicious yeah. and actually you just reminded me of a story i don't think i've ever told which was while i was making that record, um, we were working on a song called Bottom Feeder. Um, and I left the studio. I sort of gave my marching instructions. I was sick. I was usually in the studio every time a band member was in the studio. And every time John Congleton, the engineer producer, was in the studio, we were making it in Melbourne, Australia. And this day I was so sick. They were like, Amanda, go home. Or like, go. I, they might have even not even said go home. They might have just said like go away and come back in two hours. Like let us just do this. Yeah. Let us do some takes. And I was like, eh. um, and and I came back to the studio, and you know we were sort of going for this like washy, delicious, warm, wavy, synthy. Uh, looping bath. Like I was like, make it sound like a bath kind of like, you know, and we kept using disintegration as a touchstone and as a descriptor for this whole record. It was like that, make that sound like plain song, make that sound like pictures of you make that sound. And I came back into the studio and they were like, we did something really incredible. Sit down and listen to it. And I sat on the couch and they played me what they had done. And I started to cry (laughs) <laughs> because because it really did it like yeah. 
they whatever they had sonically created brought me into the world of disintegration and I started crying because I was like you made that sound and they were like we know <laughs> oh, amazing and also like it, it doesn't if you go and listen to bottom feeder it doesn't really sound like a cure song but if you know that story and you know the origin DNA, like you'll, yeah. you'll get it. Especially like if you listen to that whole record and you think about, you know, there were two big influences on that record. One was disintegration. Another, and another was basically the cars. We were like yeah. tight snare, the cars, let's, let's merge those two sounds and, and really study that production. And yeah. we did, I listened to the cars for a whole year leading up to that record. You can really like, you can hear a different record if you, yeah if you sort of bear in mind it's great grandparents and, and um, yeah, it was such a pleasure making that record. How was, how was school, Amanda? School sucked. I hated it. Um, but not as much as some of you British people and not, not of, especially of a certain vintage. Like, you know, I listened to Neil Gaiman, my husband talking about, uh, talking about his school stories and, I'm like, I got nothing. That sounds way worse. You were actually physically abused. I wasn't actually physically abused. I was just emotionally abused and isolated and sad and uncomfortable and stuck. But like, oh, like you were actually beaten up. So maybe I shouldn't complain. But yeah, I I had a really hard time in school. I I felt lonely most of the time. Um, And, you know, I've got... I've got strong feelings about education and how we're really not doing it right. Most of the time. Um, I hope to spare my son, you know, that all of that horror of, you know, we're just doing this because this is what we've always done and just sit in that chair and fucking take that test. And, you know, I had such a strong inkling at the time that it was not great. Yeah. And my parents would be like, you'll understand when you're older. And I'm like, I'm 44. And I look back and I'm like, you guys, yeah. that was not great. That yeah. was just, that was just not great. Hindsight's crazy. It's like, I tell, my, I tell my daughter all the time, you know, she's 15. She's having a really shit time at school. And I'm like, if, it doesn't matter. They're, they're, they're not the police. They're just teachers. Like, you know, yeah. don't, don't stress about it. If you don't think it's right, say it. Like, yeah. don't, don't just sit there and take it because... Fuck! If I could go back to school now, I'd just be like, "Why are we doing that? I want to yeah. be. This is what I want to be. I don't want to be an accountant. How do I do what I want to do? Can you tell me how to do that, please? It's like, yeah. Can you crazy. actually? Can you? Can you actually teach me? Yeah. Like teaching, teaching, teach me. Uh, yeah. yeah, we're bad. Like human beings are bad at understanding what teaching actually means. You know. Did you know what you wanted to be when you was a kid? Yeah. What was that? This. Really? Yeah. I wanted to be a super creative kid then. Yeah. I wanted to be a rock star. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I didn't even want to be a rock star. I wanted to be a performer who created things, music and theater. I was like, I'm gonna do something in there. And there was a while where I thought I might be a director. There was a while where I thought, um, I might go more into theater, um, but the but the strongest urge was I want to write songs and deliver them. And that's a fiercely competitive industry, uh, Amanda. But I, I you, didn't. I didn't know that. Was you driven? Yeah, I. Well, I was also i i was I was naive in a way that I still am. I was like, why can't I just, why can't I just do that? Yeah. That's healthy though sometimes, right? Yeah. It's also really a pain in the ass. Like, (laughs) you know, I I had a friend of mine tell me lately that I was like the Donald Trump of my own art world because I just had like total, you know, like total maniacal control over every department and like sitting there tweeting my, my tweets and like, uh, and and in a way, like, yeah, a lot of artists who make it have to have that kind of, like, bizarrely driven, hmm. egotistical ambition where you don't 
hear the answer no and you just drive on and you don't listen to people's opinions and you don't follow the rules and then you like and and you're so single-minded you just fucking plow through and you make it because usually that's the kind of art people actually want they don't want art by committee you know and they don't want art just sort of churned out by algorithms where does confidence fit into that well i think you need a fuck ton yeah he's confident yeah I mean, for better or worse, I have a lot of confidence. Yeah. And it, you know, it drives a lot of people crazy, but that's okay. <laughs> that's their problem. Okay. <laughs> Amanda, what was the first record you bought from a record store? Uh, it was Rant and Rave with the Stray Cats. That nice. Was my first, that was my first vinyl. I this remember. is normally when someone says something really embarrassing. That's a really cool record. Yeah. I mean, I had some embarrassing records soon after that. Like I remember buying the cocktail soundtrack not long after that. So (laughs) So, yeah, but that was my, and I saved up my fucking money. I think it was like $7.99. I remember the record store that I bought it in, in Boston. I remember holding it in the bag. I just remember being like, I own a record. It was my record. I was so excited. I was, and I was probably, you know, nine eight or nine and so as 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 you got older how important did did record shops become for you oh really important they um record stores provided a real like church for me when i was a teenager and i would um i would go to harvard square that was my main place um there were sort of like, there were record stores near to my house. We had a mall uh, near our house that I could take the bus to. But they had a, they had a shitty kind of like more pop centric store called Musicland. Right. Um, and yeah, that, that, that wasn't a good place. That was like a place that I remember as a younger kid going into and buying, you know, that's where a lot of my pop music came from. I remember buying a wham record there. Yeah. Um, and, and when I turned about 14 or 15, I started being able to take, to take the bus and then the subway and the whole trip took about an hour and 15 minutes to Harvard square, which was like the center of the universe and there was a massive proliferation of record stores. I think Harvard Square itself, just like within a 15-minute walking area, had about 10 record stores. And a lot of them were used. So there was a big Tower Records. There was a big HMV. There was a big Newbury Comics, which was the big indie. And then there were these teeny little record stores that were just used in bootleg. There was Second Coming, Mystery Train, in your ear and then a, 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 a record store called twisted village, which was just experimental and avant-garde music. And like, I had no idea how spoiled I was yeah. being able to just, that's and incredible. It was fucking incredible. And they're all gone. Now the only yeah. record store, the only used record store that survived is in your ear. It's still there all the big record stores closed and Newbury comics is still there, but they sell very little music. They sell, they sell merch and stuff. And there's a little music section where there used to be a huge one. And, and I would basically make the rounds. I had a walk that I did and I would go to mystery train first and I would go. And I just like, I almost every weekend I would probably spend two or three hours just in record stores. Yeah looking at stuff, looking through bins, um, buying cheap vinyl, seeing if there was any cure stuff I didn't have, you know, following, connecting the dots of the bands that I liked and who they'd collaborated with. That was around the time in my life I got really into Current 93, Coil, Death in June, Nick Cave, and like Swans and, you know, and Tower Records had a great import section but the, I couldn't afford those CDs, but I would look at them, but they all cost yeah. like $30, but I would sit and like pour over the current 93 artwork and look at all the, look at all the records I couldn't afford. And, and I just fucking loved being in those buildings. I yeah. just loved the smell. I loved the idea that I was around music all the time. And, 
Um, and then I went to college and, you know, there, there weren't any good music stores near me in college. So I would wait until I would go home for the weekend every month. And then I, I would just do the rounds when I got home from college. And, yeah. and then I moved back to Boston in my twenties and, um, and my music buying and listening habits really changed because, uh, I started a band, I started the Dresden dolls and, and and I became kind of poisoned because like music all of a sudden became work and, and, you know, and all of a sudden certain bands were even like my contemporaries. And I felt yeah. like I had to keep up and sort of know what was happening. And, you know, the band was constantly being given CDs by local people. And then we were touring and like, I had a pile of CDs in my house now that was bigger than the pile of CDs that I had bought. And I felt like I had to listen to them and like, music listening really changed for me then. And I remember going into tower records and thinking like, I should listen to all of the new releases because I should know what's going on because I'm in a band now and I should educate myself and I should know if the vines are actually any good. And like, I just, yeah, I I lost a lot of the beauty of music listening when I started touring. I don't think I ever actually recovered it. Okay. The song that soundtrack your time clubbing. Who says I clubbed? Well, nobody. A lot of people have said they never went clubbing. So it doesn't have to be kind of shiny, you know, yeah. house music clubs. It can be sweaty indie no, nights. Did, it can be I rock did, clubs. Okay. I, cool. I got I goth clubbed. Wicked. I goth clubbed and um Yeah. I mean, there were a few songs that would get me just like soaring on the dance floor, pretty much anything by, by Bauhaus, Joy Division or the Smiths would just get me deliriously happy. Um, Love will tear us apart. Probably. How soon is now? Probably. Amanda, I've run a, uh, an alternative indie, venue for for 20 27 years now god um, bless you and it, uh it, it started off uh in the new romantic days and it's in it's in basildon so our, our in-house band was depeche mode um way back and wow. uh and as it's changed throughout the years there's certain records that up until lockdown when we were still open would get played and the reaction and I'm talking about Love Will Tear Us Apart, and I'm talking about How Soon Is Now, I'm talking about Big Math Strikes Again, you know, yeah. that when I first went to that club as a clubber in 1989, I run to the dance floor desperate to be seen to be dancing to these records because I wanted to be seen that, yeah, I'm, I'm into the Smiths, you know, and yeah. like, I wanted to, to show everyone that, yeah, I'm, you know, I have my, I have my, my really, really piss poor Morrissey quiff that I just didn't look good wearing. And, you, just uh, didn't have enough, I, you just didn't have enough hair, probably. Exactly, probably. You have to have so much hair. <laughs> but and then, <laughs> and, it, and it's so mad, though, uh, man, because still I see excited 18-year-old kids rushing to the dance floor for the Smiths and for Joy Division and The Cure, yeah. you know, still. And it's like... Yeah. There's a reason for that, you know. They're just incredible well, records. Yeah, they're incredible. Like, Big Mouth Strikes Again is the other one I would have ma- mentioned. Like, it's also about the production of those records. I mean, those are great songs and the songwriting's great, but songwriting does not equal dancing. And yeah. the, the production, like, when I hear the opening of Big Mouth Strikes Again, it's just like, ah! it's almost like a, it's like a siren call to, yeah. to like grab your hair and move your body. Yeah. Um, I have to, can I turn the tables for a second? Go for it. What about Morrissey? Right. So you mentioned Michael Jackson earlier, right? So, so this is kind of a question that pops up a lot because lots of people, um, you know, have got, you know, have answered these questions with Michael Jackson records and lots of people, um, have answered it with Smith's records. And and I'm just, I always like to ask the question um, because I've got Morrissey's lyrics towed all over me. And and I'm like always, can you, I'm going to turn the tables back on you because I've answered it a fair few times. And can you separate the art 
from the artist. So can you know? Can you happily listen to Michael Jackson records? And I mean, Michael Jackson's not been proved guilty of anything. We should say that, I guess. But you know, and, and some of the dumb shit that Morrissey said recently, you know, it's I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to make of it, Amanda. You know, this guy was like he was my cure. He was the thing that yeah. when I felt you know, lost as a young lad. It was like, Morrissey's the one that was like, he spoke to us. And it's like, w- w- hang on, w- what are you saying? No, man, this is weird. Uh, yeah, well, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are like, actually, what I think, and as an artist who, you know, who's controversial enough in certain moments to, you know, have people telling me that they're covering up their tattoos and burning their Amanda Palmer records, um, which ha- has happened. Um, I think you can't separate the art from the artists, but I also think that doesn't mean that the art can't speak to you. Mm. So I think, I think the problem with humanity right now is we, we think it should be simple and it's fucking not. And the fact that Morrissey spoke to you and maybe saved you cannot and should not be taken away. Hmm. And the fact that he said something racist last week should not also be erased. And those two things should be allowed to live in in harmony because they can both be fucking true. Hmm. And I think... You know, there's so much talk right now about erasure, and I think we have to be really careful because your tattoos still have meaning and carry context and weight for you. And because Morrissey said something racist last week does not mean that you have to sort of like dig into your soul and do a personal erasure of what happened to you when you were 15. Mm. I would actually venture further to say like that that's dangerous. Mm. That's really dangerous when you start thinking that we have to rewrite our personal history, because Mm. whatever Morrissey was saying to you at 15, if it wasn't racist and it spoke to you, it has incredible value. Mm. And so I just think we need to be really careful about contextualizing things. Yeah. So like you now, would you give your daughter the new Morrissey record for her oh, birthday and I'll not say, what. by the way, Morrissey said some racist shit last week. Um, but maybe let's still check out this album and see what he's saying. I wonder if the lyrics will be racist and like contextualize it because that's yeah. all we fucking have. Like yeah. when it comes to art, we have to have context. Art doesn't exist without context, and context yeah. always includes the artist, yeah. their, their political alignment, whether or not they were in prison when they wrote the fucking record, you know, whether or not they, um, you know, believe in a certain dogma. Like, that's all real. It's allowed. Yeah. You're al- and you're allowed as an audience member to change your feelings about Morrissey, Michael Jackson, Cat Stevens, Bob Dylan, me, fucking anyone. And that's also like the, po- the power of the listener and the audience is that yeah. it doesn't, you know, you, you don't have to take the dictation of dogma from some giant media that says now Bob Dylan bad or now Morrissey good or now anything. It's like, no, I... I know my history and I'm allowed totally. to have my context and I'm oh, allowed yeah. to have my fucking complicated feelings about this artist. Absolutely. And like, Oh my God, I can't listen to thriller without thinking of the stain on Michael Jackson. What an experience. Does it mean I'm going to stop listening to thriller? Maybe for someone. Yes. Maybe for someone else. No. And those mm. both have to be okay. Yeah. I, uh, when, when you said about, um, you know, Giving my daughter a, a Smiths record, I've tried not to kind of um, influence what my kids listen to. I'm like, they'll find their way, you know. And uh, yeah. there's always music on, and uh, and and I'll let them find their thing. And uh, but then a little while ago, I uh, I was watching some sort of Smiths. Day. It was actually um, 
early Morrissey stuff, and he was it was part of his live show, and uh, and I said to my daughter, I was like, "Come and watch this," and she's like, "Wow," and she's like, because it was at the point when there's lots of people, probably like I was at that point, trying to get on stage just to hug Morrissey, right? And like, and he's ripping his shirt and he's throwing it in the crowd, and my daughter was like. Wow, that's like they're, they're they're like men, like and 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 you could tell she was like, and she went, it's a bit like One Direction, but he's like, and, and I was trying to kind of explain Morrissey, and I was like, yeah, it's like that, but it's different, and like, but and then actually, my, it, but it's kind of not. No, I know, and it was a it's real weird not. thing to try and work out. And my wife coming, she's like, oh my. God, are you trying to explain Morrissey to the kids? And I was like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, I'm, dear. I'm hanging out with a couple of teenagers right now who are really into K-pop. Right. And it's the same thing. It's just like that, like, insane, boy-crazy, passionate, I just have, like, 80 pictures of this person on my wall and, like... <laughs> Don't even really want to fuck them, but just want to like make love with their isness on a cellular level. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I mean, the weird thing about Morrissey is like how quickly that stage thing sort of became uh, like a, a, a shtick almost, and how like, you know, being an entertainer is weird. Like, weird yeah. shit happens, and then all of a sudden it's part of your narrative and your story. And and watching Morrissey's story and narrative as a stage entertainer is its own unique artwork. Absolutely. <laughs> Amanda, there's two tracks left. And for number six, I'm going to ask you to tell me a favorite track from an artist from your home county. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I got one. Go for it. Um, Behind the Wall by Tracy Chapman. Oh, beautiful record. Yeah. I just rediscovered that record, and I, I had kind of forgotten about it. And I was actually at a bar in L.A. that was like one of those ultra-hip bars in, like, Echo Park, I think. And... um the bartender was also the DJ and there was a giant stack of records. And in between making fancy drinks, the bartender would go like tend to the vinyl and, uh, and he put, and, and he played whole records and he put that album on. And I was with a, um, I was with, of all things, I, I was with an Olympic skateboarder, I think. Of course she was. <laughs> like you do. And she was like, or was I? God, I forget who I was with. I, I don't want to get it wrong. I was with someone really young. This is a blurry memory. This is a few years ago, and I was under a lot of stress. And I just remember going like, oh, my God, you've never heard of Tracy Chapman? And they were like, no, who's that? And I was like, ah! Then, and, the, and that song came on. And I, and I remember thinking, fuck, Tracy Chapman grew up not far from me, street performed on the same pitch that I did, but 10 years earlier. And I got into that record um, when I was about, again, maybe 13, 14. And it really only occurred to me in that moment, rediscovering the record, that she was teaching me about what was happening five miles from my house. And I had no idea. Like I lived in such a white, privileged suburban bubble and Tracy Chapman did not and sang about it. And even though that album had to go all the way up the chain to get to like, you know, the top of her getting signed to whatever ginormous label she must have been signed to in order for me to write away to Columbia Records Club to get it in the mail with 12 other records for a penny and, 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 and sign a contract saying I would buy a record for the next 10 years or whatever. Like, that's how my Tracy Chapman music got delivered to me. I didn't know she was local. 
I didn't know, like no one told me. And, and what's so amazing is like, that's like, talk about teaching. Like my teachers in school weren't teaching me that five miles away in Boston, there was a black ghetto and people were getting shot and dying. No one was teaching me that. They were teaching me about like World War II and Vietnam and da, 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 but they weren't teaching me that. Yeah. And, and it was like putting a puzzle piece together where I was like, oh my God, right. Tracy Chapman was from my fucking neighborhood and singing songs to me about what was happening right there. And I was talking about a revolution 10 minutes from your house. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and yeah, it, that was a really, that was a real gut punch. Yeah. Realizing that that record was made so close to home. It was crazy. Okay. Last track, Amanda, and you get to play DJ now. Great. Um, a song that many may not know that you would like them to hear. <gasps> Ooh. Oh, what power. I get to, this is like I get to play God. Yeah, totally turn someone onto something new. Um, I've got a good one. Okay. Um, and and I and I I say it especially because it's it's she's on the scene now and people should know about her because the shit she is putting out right now is so good and she's not getting enough attention. Um, the artist is Rhiannon Giddens, and she's she's originally from a band called the Carolina Chocolate Drops, and she's a black American woman living in Ireland. And she, Carolina Chocolate Drops were almost like a, like a, like throwback bluegrass, like Southern um, country, not even country, but like old folk. Yeah. And she put out a sort of a, a concept album called Our Native Daughters uh, right around the time I put my record out. And I heard this track off it and I got like full, full body chills when I heard it. It's really short. I think the song's a minute and a half and it's called mama's crying long and it's acapella and clapping. And it like, it stopped me in my tracks and I was like, okay, I have to know more about this artist and hear this whole record and um, she's an important voice right now. And that song is an important song and the record's an important record. And she actually, she just released a video that all, again, like she's got the knack for like giving me full body chills, like again and again and again. She just put this song out that's sort of almost in a, in a it has a similar tone to it. Uh, and she did it as a kind of a Zoom video collaboration with, uh, I think, like 50 singers from the Me- Metropolitan Opera Chorus. And they're all like staring down the barrel of the camera and you see them all backing her up. She's sort of, she's sort of like sitting there like a regal queen leading this chorus with one drum. And it's like... Both of those songs. I think the I think the new one is called "We Can't Cry No More." Yeah. And is that, is that video on YouTube? That sounds yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah, I just shared it on social media, and if you do a search for Rhiannon Giddens Metropolitan Opera Chorus, you'll you'll find it. And it's like it's powerful stuff. Like she's just like she's just taking the plug and she's just sticking it right into the jugular of yeah. what is going on right now, and it's and it's intense. Amazing. It's good. Amanda, we put together a little playlist to accompany this um, podcast. So we'll put all the tracks that we've we've spoken about on there so people can go and listen to all the tunes that we've spoke about. Um, as we hopefully find ourselves, um, things are looking more positive, hopefully, and, and, and finding our way back out of, uh, you know, what's been a, a very weird and interesting year. Um, what are you most looking forward to? <laughs> Oh my God, no one's asked me that in a really long time. Uh, well, besides world peace and uh, the divisive, uh, terrible, 
broken racist flames of America just tamping down and everyone getting along and it turning back into a fantastic constitutional democracy that everyone enjoys living in. Um, I'm just, I'm looking forward to um, having more bandwidth to write music. Okay. I mean, really, that's what I'm looking forward to. I I miss it. Like talking about it is such a cock tease. I really, I miss, <laughs> I miss making music. I miss having time and bandwidth to, to, um, to take all of the feelings that I am having and, and, and get rid and get rid of them. Cause I, I need music and songwriting. I use it as a as a palliative care measure for myself and when i can't do it it's it's hard and the podcast when can people check that out there's a couple um, out right the, po- the podcast is out right now it's called the art of asking everything you can get it pretty much everywhere podcasts things exist um and it's ad free which is great because it's supported by my patreon mm-hmm. and um, I just dropped a new episode yesterday with Lenny Henry that is amazing. Um, I talked to him right after his book came out. Um, he has a memoir called Who Am I Again that came out in December. And we we talk about some really, really good stuff, like how, you know, race and problems in the UK for sure, but also like how we use art and especially how he learned how to use humor to yeah. to get through and past and it's a great conversation um so that just went up a few hours ago and you can download it for free anywhere you can download a podcast wonderful amanda it's been an absolute joy chatting records with you thank you so much you are so welcome the pleasure is all mine hang in there sorry about your country There you go. Amanda Palmer, ladies and gentlemen, that was a wonderful chat. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely loved that. And I hope you got as much pleasure listening to that as uh, as I did sitting uh, opposite Amanda having that chat. Um, what, what a wonderful, wonderful person. Um, head over to um, the Spotify page and listen to all the tracks that we've chatted about um, on the Off The Beaten Track podcast uh, guest guest podcast i think that's what you search for or just search for amanda palmer in podcast and while you're over there check out amanda's new podcast obviously um and yeah thanks loads for listening uh why not go and have a look in the, the back catalogue of off the beaten track chats and see which ones you fancy giving a listen and uh and i'll see you next time remember everything you need to know about this is on www.offthebeatentrackpodcast.com thanks loads bye-bye i've got an announcement Save Our Souls Clothing, www.sosclothing.co.uk. Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable, and water based inks. And in addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, 
Put in the discount code BEAT15. B-E-A-T-1-5. And that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk Official sponsors of Off The Beaten Track Podcast. It's Off The Beaten Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me, stew with it. 